Have you ever wondered what happened to the legendary Chuck Norris? I recently saw a health video he made and I was surprised. He's in his 80s and still seems to have his energy and health. He says he's even stronger, has more stamina, and plenty of energy left over for his grandkids since making one simple health change that helps his digestion and nutrition. He says he still feels like he's in his 50s. His wife made the same change and she's never felt better. She says she feels 10 years younger and she has energy all day. Many of us do not include the fruits, vegetables, and other herbs that increase health and energy in our own diets. Chuck Norris made a special video that explains how he incorporated these things with one simple product. You can watch it by going to mymorningkick.com forward slash Harris. It may change your approach to your own health. Once again, that's mymorningkick.com forward slash Harris. Welcome to the first episode of Conversations That Matter, and today I have with me Dr. Boyd Cathy, who is, uh, it would take me a while to go through your pedigree here, uh, but among other things, you studied at the Catholic University of Navarra in Spain, and I believe you said, you told me you did your dissertation there in Spanish, is that right? That's, that's correct. It, the the uh, University of Navarra is located in Pamplona, in northern Spain. Um, at the time I was there, it was one of only two private universities mm-hmm. uh, in Spain, and it had it had and it continues to have a very, very high reputation academically. And you also were a I, did, I did my dissertation there, and mm-hmm. I had to, I wrote it in Spanish. Yes. And how, you know what four languages? I think something like that. Yeah. Uh, I can speak fluently three. If you want to include Johnston County, North Carolina, that's four. Good <laughs> uh, Southern in there. But I can I can read. Let's see. I speak French and Spanish, uh, English. I hope to some degree. Yeah. I can read uh, most other Romance languages like Italian and Portuguese. Um, so um, yeah. You're a Richard Weaver Fellow, um, master. I was from... a Richard Weaver Fellow at the University of Nevada, and uh, that was a, a great honor and a pleasure. I paid paid my way um, for my for my research, and uh, you also studied at University of Virginia as a Jefferson Fellow, and you were the yes. assistant to Russell Kirk. I had I um, I got a fellowship, a Jeff- Thomas Jefferson Fellowship, to study studied history under the late uh, uh, Merrill Peterson, who was the the expert on Thomas Jefferson, along with. Dumas Malone, who also was a mentor there. Uh, after that, I took a year off to work with the conservative writer, author, uh, Dr. Russell Kirk. I spent a year with him working or assisting him uh, on a book on T.S. Eliot and also a second book, uh, The Roots of American Order. So when you came out with this book, The Land We Love, with essays from 1983 to the present, I mean, you are, you're talking about things that you know a whole lot about, from your uh, relationship with Kirk to Eugene Genovese to Paul Gottfried. And, I mean, you've just been around the conservative Southern, um, paleo-conservative tradition for years now. Um, and, you know, I, I like this book quite a bit. I want to do, um, start out with the, the essay I love the most, I think, and I like a lot of them, but Paladins of Christian Civilization your third chapter. Uh, I mean, this is a study that I have never seen 
done before on all these European Christians who came to fight for the Confederacy. Can you tell me a little bit about that and how you came to this knowledge? Uh, yes, I think most people in the United States who are in any way familiar with the war between the states don't understand that it it had a an international uh, it had international ramifications and importance, and it was vitally uh, followed by the press and the population in Europe. Now, I, what happened to me was when I went to Spain and then later Switzerland for additional study in theology and philosophy, um, I discovered that the ideas that that uh, percolated during the war between the states had caused great turmoil in some ways among European, European population. Mm -hmm. I discovered, for example, that there were volunteers from most of the major European countries who went and fought in particular for the Confederacy. Uh, these were volunteers, unlike many of the Irish, who were basically conscripted when they got off the boat mm -hmm. uh, to fight in the, the northern armies. Um, I discovered, for example, that there were a thousand or so at least <clears throat> traditionalist uh, Catholic uh, volunteers from Spain who entered by way of Mexico across the Rio Grande. I discovered that there were... Uh, a number of Italians from the old kingdom of of Naples, for example, which had been defeated by their own set of Yankees, uh, the 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 king of Piedmont uh, unified Italy in 1861, and a number of the veterans of the army of the kingdom of Naples then sailed to New Orleans and formed the Italian Legion um, and fought heroically for the Confederacy, they they understood, if you will, analogously that what the Confederacy appeared to be fighting for uh, was what they had fought for as traditional uh, traditionalist and traditional Catholics in many regards. Of course, it wasn't uh, it wasn't exclusively Catholic. There were also Protestants who came and fought mm -hmm. uh, for the Confederacy, but it. It's a story that has yet to be really be told, and what impressed me was I had some dear friends in Pamplona who were uh, members of the, the, the minor uh, lower nobility, if you will. One of them recounted to me that his great-great-grandfather had gone to, uh, to, had been a soldier, a uh, captain who fought with the traditionalist Carl Carlist armies in their own civil wars in 19th century Spain, and then had volunteered had gone to the Confederacy and fought there. And I was just amazed by the the idea that there were people in those countries who kept up and understood analogously what the Confederates were fighting for, that they, in a sense, uh, connected the, that, that, that rationale with their own mm -hmm. circumstances and beliefs in Europe. It, 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 it's an amazing story. Now, you've estimated at about 2,000 from Naples, and that's, I mean, yes. that's no small number. I mean, all the, the hardship of trying to travel that distance in order to fight. Um, you talk about uh, Johann Harras von Bork, uh, General Polkat, yes, right? Yes, the Prussian. Mm -hmm. Prussian, yeah. Um, and, and, of course, there was the Prince de Polignac, who, had, who was one of the most noble families in all of France, uh, a relative of his had been the prime minister for 
the last legitimate uh, Bourbon king, Charles X, who was dethroned in 1830. But he had been an expert in artillery, had fought in the Crimean War, and volunteered and came to Louisiana, which, of course, was, was in many ways very French uh, with its traditions, and uh, actually fought uh, at the Battle of Mansfield, led one of the wings of Richard Taylor's army that was victorious. And uh, the funny story about General Polignac is that he inherited a, a division of Texas frontiersmen. And so the story goes they could not pronounce his name, and they called him General Polcat. Yeah. <laughs> but they they would have followed him to the gates of hell itself. They were so loyal. And he, he was the last major general of the Confederacy to die. I think he died during World War One. But there are all sorts of stories uh, of of these men. Uh, the Neapolitans uh, amazed me. And I began to do research on my own uh, and discover that there were descendants uh, of those volunteers uh, who went back to Italy. And I had actually went to a cemetery outside of Naples, um, Civitella del Tronco, it's called. And there are veterans of the war between the states buried there. And there is a third national Confederate flag flying in the cemetery. And I, I, here, here, you know, several thousand miles away are several dozen, maybe a hundred or so Confederate veterans who spoke Italian, who fought for the Confederacy, buried on what is now Italian soil. I just find it kind of amazing. Um, you can look online. There, there are actually photographs. Um, there are short histories because some of these these Italian veterans remained in Louisiana and Mississippi and other places, uh, settled down after the war, married and had families. And I've actually had correspondence from some members of the Sons of Confederate Veterans who are descended from some of these people who still live uh, in those states. So it's a story amazing. that I think it's an amazing story, if you will. It is. Uh, and what strikes me about it, and for those who are listening in here, uh, they did not have a dog in the fight as far as, I mean, they didn't own a plantation in the South. Uh, they certainly wouldn't be fighting for slavery coming that great distance. So what was it that compelled them? I mean, I know you just mentioned they saw parallels in some of their own struggles and traditionalism, but um, if you could boil it all down, what did they see yeah. in the Confederacy that was... Well, there, there, there is a, a motto that the traditionalist in Spain had. And that motto in Spanish is Dios, Patria, Fuero, Cire, which God, country, our local rights, and our king. Well, obviously, the last part, king, does not apply. But God, country, and our local rights does apply. Hmm. And if you look at what was happening in the South and the intellectual... Uh, influences that were affecting it prior to the war between the states. There was indeed a tractarian, a, 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 an analogous tractarian movement. There was a theological movement uh, that affected generally the whole South that made it far more traditional. Louis Hartz called the, the South before the war. He said it did not experience the same kind of I don't use the word enlightenment, but he said it, it experienced a reactionary enlightenment. And you find this in the writings of any number of Southerners at the, 
even before the time of the war, people like General James Pettigrew, for example, who went to Europe and actually understood European traditions. But it is it is God country and our local rights. They understood the idea of federalism because European traditionists are are they are federalists. They believe in a federal idea. They are also firm believers in a traditional Christianity. Admittedly, uh, the Christianity in in the southern states was was mostly Protestant, but they understood the orthodoxy of it all. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, uh, country. They 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 had a a sympathy for the South as a, a an extension, if you will, of European civilization, and so it was that more than anything else that compelled them, propelled them, if you will, to get on boats and sneak into the Confederacy or sneak across the Rio Grande to volunteer for the South. Um, the South was considered cavalier as opposed to Puritans in the North. Um, and so that cause motivated them. And you see it in the European press. When I was in Europe, I read uh, numerous accounts and uh, many writers, both not just in England, but in France and Spain and parts of Italy, even in Germany. And they they understood this. They 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 saw this, and they they were able analogously to to find their this in their own beliefs and see it in the Confederacy. Yeah, well, it, it certainly is an amazing story. Um, I I had not heard it, and I'm very glad that you put it in this anthology, uh, The Land We Love, The South, and Its Heritage, uh, out now. Um, you can go on Amazon and get it. Where else can you get it? Is it just Amazon, pretty much? Uh, you, you you can get it at, at Amazon. Uh, <clears throat> it is available now for the, the, the copies that they originally got. They, they sold out, but it, it is available now. For, from Amazon, it can be gotten before Christmas, but you'll have to hurry probably. Yeah. Uh, it's also available through Barnes and Noble, uh, and both Amazon and Barnes and Noble do have marketplace sources where you can find uh, it a little bit cheaper than the normal list price of around twenty-eight dollars. It's a hardback book, and then of course Scuppernong Press. If you look up Scuppernong Press, you can order it directly from the the publisher and probably even get it within a few days uh because they're they're rather quick i wanted to get into another topic you talk about and this is probably one that's more personal for me but you uh say in in chapter five is the title how the neoconservatives destroyed southern conservatism and a little personal aside here, I got tired of hearing the term neoconservative because I looked at it as a pejorative. Um, I had even been called a neo, neocon, you know, the short form of it by people before. And I just got sick of it because I'm like, well, you're not really making any argument. You're just throwing a word out there. But as I read this essay, things started to click for me. And I think I understand now why neoconservatism, because you defined it. Um, is such a problem. And, and you talk about egalitarianism, equality um, in a negative sense, and, uh, and then what individualism for Southern conservatives meant, and then what it means for uh, neoconservatives. So I was hoping maybe you could go into that a little bit, define neoconservatism, maybe give a few names for prominent neoconservatives, and then uh, tell us what the problem with that is. Okay. Um, 
I think we have to start back in the 18th century and basically the beginnings of what would become the United States. And uh, my mentors have been the late Mel Bradford, uh, tremendous intellect, and, and even before him, Richard Weaver, who taught for years. He was a North Carolinian, taught at University of Chicago. The emphasis is this nation that we inhabit was a nation founded by families. It was founded on the idea of families who came largely from the British Isles, but also from France and Germany eventually, who came and settled and brought with them their religion, their beliefs, their customs, everything, their songs, their music, their ballads, their heritage. It was a Christian heritage that they brought to these shores. They brought with them, they came in community. Now, they came believing in a kind of individualism, but it was what Richard Weaver calls communitarian individualism. In other words, it was a a, a belief in communities. And each person, each family, I should say, uh, had its own role. And that role was determined by, in large measure, its faith and the traditions that it inherited. This runs completely against the, the current view uh, that in one way distinguishes what we call neoconservatism. The neoconservatives, if you will, and I'll get to some of this them in a minute, uh, believe that America was founded as an ide- idealization, basically on an idea. Mm-hmm. And you hear that a lot. And what You hear yeah, people say and, America and, is an idea. Yeah. Uh, Bradford and more recently Barry Allen Shane, who's a professor at Colgate, has done a fantastic uh, study of this. Look at the writings of both the founders and the framers of the Constitution. And they don't talk about ideas. They talk about family, land, blood, kinship, the inheritance they have received as Englishmen, uh, you know, those basic English rights. And as Bradford talks about in his book, Original Intentions, uh, when they wrote the Declaration of Independence, where the words, uh, you know, equality, freedom, and equality show up, they're not talking about it here in the United States, in the new nation. They're talking about it in reference to England. In other words, they're Englishmen, and they're protesting that they're not being treated as Englishmen. Mm-hmm. But they understood fully, and and Bradford and, and, and Professor Shane have gone through, uh, as George Carey at Georgetown did years ago, thousands of letters and correspondence and articles and diaries, etc., these people were establishing a country which was an extension of Europe. Yes, it was different. To quote Richard Weaver again, it was a country of families and states, and these states were composed of communities, communitarian individualism. This is what their freedom was all about. This is in contradistinction to the neocon idea which basically I distinguish, and others have done before me it better, as a kind of a leftist idea, an inversion of what America is all about. Even before the war between the states, if you look at the writings of most Americans, including Americans north of the Mason-Dixon line, 
there is a continuation of the original belief that this nation is founded upon families and that states come together to make this constitution, each guarding its own traditions and the traditions of those families and those communities in those states. After the war between the states, to some degree before, but after, you have this evolving doctrine, which now has flourished with what we call neoconservatism, that America is a series of ideas, equality and democracy. And I think if you go back carefully and look at history, you'll find that those two terms are considered terms of opprobrium. They are not terms that the people at the time used positively. I mean, yes, they do talk about democratic institutions, but they're not talking about it in the same way that we talk about it today. And so what you've got is neoconservatism, which is, as a philosophy, as a general idea, is a left-wing thing that comes from, eventually came from, the the Trotskyite version of Marxism. Uh these the, the neoconservatives, I can name some of them people like we uh Irving Crystal and Norman Padaritz and, and others, uh, the late Charles Krautheimer and others were uh, originally they were what you might call Trotskyite Marxists who made the uh, the trek from the left to so called right, but they brought with them these ideas of, of across-the-board equality and democracy. And in a sense, they captured the conservative movement, so-called, of the 1950s, people like my mentor, Russell Kirk, who abhorred these things, uh, the old National Review of the 1950s and early 1960s. Uh, they, they captured these, and they recast the conservative movement and in a sense, they began to capture Southern thought as well. I mean, there are a lot of Southern political leaders who share these these ideas now about democracy and inequality. the The American nation was not based on equality. It's a simple fact. It's a fact of history. When the founders and framers talk about equality, it is equality vis-a-vis the Parliament at Westminster in England, right. basically. You know, I mean, you don't talk about equality. If you're dealing with a, with a country where each state, for example, had the, the right, which they guarded jealously, to have an established church. I mean, Virginia, for example, had established the, the Episcopal Church, the Anglican Church, until 1829. In North Carolina, for example, you had to be a Christian to hold office as late as 1868. In Massachusetts, the, the Congregational Church was the state church until 1820. Obviously, the Constitution had nothing to say about that. The Constitution only talks about the establishment of a national church. It leaves untouched the traditions and customs and laws of the individual states that were established. And so I think this is a realization about the foundation of our country that we have to understand. We've come a long way. And... That is very important because what has happened in the last 20 or 30 years, basically the what I call we, what we call the neocons, the neoconservatives, have, have to some degree taken over the conservative movement and displaced the older conservative ideas dealing with the founding and with what should be the beliefs expressed by the American nation. 
Yeah, I think you do a really good job here. This is one of the quotes from your book. You say that um, what you were just talking about, the philosophies from rationalists, uh, they replace the legacy of kinship and blood and attachment to community and to land and a central religious core that annealed this tradition and continued to make it vi or, um, yeah, viable. And so in reading that quote, I'm seeing a couple of things jump out at me, uh, the land, community, and religion, and, and tradition, I guess, as well. So a fourth thing there. Uh, and, and you're saying the neocons, these things don't matter as much to them. They're more portable with their principles. They, they would take American principles in their mind, and they would go to a foreign country and say, well, they can sprout here and work just as fine in a different religion, different social context. And you're saying that's not true, and conservatives never thought that. Am I understanding you? Well, yeah, what, what happened is they've gone back and recast terminology from the 18th and early 19th century to mean something that the individuals who used it and employed it at that time <clears throat> never intended. Okay. Uh, so when they go back to the Declaration of Independence, they use it as a cudgel to destroy any and every type of difference. They even use it as far as feminism and sex and and things like that, or race, for example. I mean, the, the founders never intended the terms democracy and equality, for example, or even freedom, to be used in the same sense. I mean, the, the founders were not, the framers were not, people did not believe in, in uh, authoritarianism, but they believed in a Republican-structured system, which was basically based on, on uh, male household suffrage, individual communities that govern themselves with a certain autonomy. autonomy. But the whole point being is the states had rights to do certain things to maintain their own traditions. What the neocons have done is they've gone back and recast and rewritten the history, and then they go around the world and they say, well, you have to accept American democracy and equality. You go to a Muslim country, for example, which has been practicing the Muslim faith for 1,500 years with all of its traditions and ideas, and you go in and all of a sudden you tell these people, well, you've got to start voting in an election and let women vote and all this kind of stuff. And it, whether or not it's a good thing or a bad thing is not, not the point. The point is that it offends the local cu the culture. Hmm. You go to, to Russia and you demand that the Russians who, who have a deep, a deep belief against, for example, homosexuality should accept gay rights. I mean, you have Americans going around to the rest of the world demanding that they accept beliefs which are totally foreign, but in fact are also foreign to the basic roots of the American system. Now, to me, that makes sense. In the American nation. A great deal of sense. And I think to an Orthodox Christian, that would make sense. Uh, I know that we talk about the Imago Dei as being... They're, they're sort of this leveling field that people are equal in the eyes of God. But that's not what we're talking about right now. We're talking about an egalitarian equality, which is something completely Absolutely. different. Um, yeah, what we're yeah, we, we, are, we, we have equality in the face of God in the sense that God judges us, but based on our own capacity as a human being. We're all created not the same. Right. We face God in the sense that we're equal, in the sense that we each have an equal opportunity right. so to it, do his will and his bidding. But each of us, I use the, 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 the parable of the talents in St. Matthew. You know, St. Matthew has three examples in that parable. 
the man with one, the man with two, and the man or three, the man with five talents. Okay. And what's fascinating is the man with five talents, who is obviously more wealthy, is the one who complies with our Lord's will, whereas the man with one talent fails to do that. What that parable, in a sense, is telling us is that we are each judged not on the basis of what the other man does or has, but on the basis of our own particular gifts, which are considered as equal in that, in God's sense, in the sense that that we are we are equal to ourselves. If you follow what I'm saying, yes. we have our own potential, and that potential is ours and ours alone. And on that basis, we are judged. And that, if you look back in the 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 great Calvinists like Robert Louis Dabney or James Henley Thornwell, for example, this is exactly the way they understand it. This is not egalitarianism. This is not legislating across the board equality of wealth and status and position, which is antithetical to traditional Christianity, whether it be Protestant, Catholic, or what have you. Um, I think that's what that's that's what I would say. Yeah, that, I mean that's brilliant. I I think most Christians, perhaps, uh, and I'm speaking more from an evangelical context here, but I'm sure it would go for uh, all traditions of Christianity in this country. Probably are not familiar with the argument you just made because we've been. Yeah, no, here, here's here's the point: the fact that a man is poor and raises a family but does it well, and a man may be a billionaire and squanders his money. The the man who, who is poor and, and fulfills his God-given grace and gift well is going to be a, a better steward of the graces that he received. Just as in the parable, the man who had five talents and doubled his talents is far to be praised and has done his duty face to God more so than the man who sat on his that is a parable that contradicts the idea of across-the-board equality. Each of those men faces God. Each of those men has given different gifts. They're not the same gift. They're different gifts. And they are told, use those gifts, and you'll be judged accordingly. Mm. And there's no comparison. You, can't, you don't compare the man who does who's a brilliant writer with the man who's a brilliant politician with the man who's a bricklayer. The bricklayer, if he does his job better than the other two, is going to be favored by God more. It's just that simple. And this is what our ancestors, both Protestant and Catholic, understood fully and why the modern idea of equality is really, in a sense, a heresy. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com.